Thank you for checking out the Collective Church podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you've never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. Easter Sunday is right around the corner, and we would love for you to make plans to be at Collective that day. It's going to be an amazing Sunday, so mark your calendars for April 9th. You won't want to miss it. For more information, make sure you are following us on social media at My Collective Church. Now let's get into Sunday's message. Good morning, Collective Church. It's so good to be here in this room with all of you. Uh, If this is your first time here, it's my first time here too, so uh, you're in good company, or at least we're in good company. This is, uh, I travel all over uh, the country and I speak at a lot of churches, uh, and this is a church that is welcoming and loving, and I've just enjoyed my time here already, so let me assure you that you're in in a great place. My wife and I drove in this morning from uh, Silver Spring, which is where we make our home. Uh, I'm from Atlanta, but we moved here two years ago when I took a job with Christian Financial Resources as the regional VP for the Northeast. This means my region is from Maryland all the way up to Maine. There's 11 states, so I travel a lot and get to visit a ton of churches and see um, what they're doing, and we help so many of those uh, churches financially. Now, we chose to live in Maryland uh, when we moved here, we chose to live in Maryland, although we didn't know much about uh, the state. In fact, it feels like we're still getting to know uh, Maryland, um, kind of in the dating phase, I guess you would say, and uh, it's starting to feel like we're, uh, we're kind of falling in love, and this is starting to feel like it's uh, home for us. In fact, when we, when we started looking for a place uh, to move to, um, we didn't even have a particular city in mind. And we just knew that we were coming here. This was back in 2021. Uh, we knew we were coming here. We just needed a place to land. And if you remember, the housing market was hot back then. Everybody was looking for a house. People were bidding over, asking value for houses. So we rented a little two-bedroom condo down in Silver Spring. However, we're looking to uh, buy a house at some point in the future. And I keep hearing fantastic things about Frederick. And now I know there's an incredible church community here in Frederick. So after service, I'll be at this table in the lobby. I'd love to hear from you. What's one thing you love about Frederick? Or what's one reason me and my wife should consider moving here to Frederick? Now, if you aren't familiar with with Christian Financial Resources, uh, we're a nonprofit ministry that was founded in 1980. We've loaned almost $1.3 billion to churches to fund church projects. Most of this has been for building renovations and purchases, uh, projects kind of like what you all did here, although you all did this without taking on new debt. So that's an incredible thing. Um, most of this has been you know, building purchases, renovations, but practically speaking, what it means is that on any given weekend, about 400,000 people are gathered in churches funded by CFR. Countless people are being baptized into Jesus Christ. People are learning to live and love like Jesus, and they're being sent out to be good news in their community. And I got to believe that's what our world needs right now, and this is making the world a better place. Our mission at CFR is simple. It's funding ministry uh, that changes lives. And the way we're able to do this is that people invest money with us. They earn a great rate of return, but they also get the joy of knowing that their savings is going to fund loans, going to fund ministry at at churches. 
Now, I'm a little biased. I think this is a pretty good model. It's actually a biblical model. It's followers of Jesus who are helping churches expand the kingdom and reach more people uh, with the good news of Jesus Christ. So that's CFR. Uh, That's what I do. That's what our ministry is passionate about. Now, I'm excited to be jumping in on this iHeart series this morning. And I know you've been talking a lot about generosity and giving and the impact uh, that it has on our, on our faith. And I want to talk this morning about one of the primary things that often hinders us from living the generous life that God created us to live. In fact, I think that if we're not careful, that there's one thing that will have us living for ourselves instead of living for God. And so we're going to start in Psalm chapter 24, and then we're going to jump over to Matthew chapter 6, and then we're going to hear some words from Jesus. So Psalm 24 verse 1 says this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Now Psalm 24 verse 1 is a foundational passage for forming a biblical understanding of stewardship. Now, stewardship is not an exclusively Christian word. In fact, it was first used in the Middle Ages to refer to a person whose job it was to care for a large estate. Now, a good steward didn't own the property, but managed it in a way uh, that the owner would want it to be managed, in a way that would please the owner. Therefore, the steward didn't do what seemed best or what felt like it was the most appropriate thing to do, but the steward did what the owner would do if the owner was managing it himself. Now, over the years, this word stewardship has come to refer to the care or management of any resource. So you might hear someone talk about environmental stewardship or financial stewardship or stewarding their time. The reality is any resource can be uh, stewarded. So in a biblical sense, though, if the earth is the Lord's, as Psalm 24 verse 1 says, if the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, then we're not owners, right? We're managers. We're stewards. Whether we like it or not, that's really what we are. And so I think the question for us that I want us to sit with this morning is what kind of stewards will we be? Now, I'm going to spare you all the statistics this morning about how poorly Americans are managing their money and how often we're possessed by our possessions, because the reality is it's not about how Americans are managing their money, but rather the question for us is how will you manage your money? How will you relate to your possessions? I think from a biblical perspective, we could ask this kind of in a simpler way. What will you do with God's stuff? right? Everything belongs to God. What are you going to do with God's stuff that's been entrusted to your care? Now, several years ago, my wife and I felt like God was calling us to be, become foster parents. Um, we didn't have biological children, and we realized that our home could be stewarded uh, for a greater purpose. We had a couple of dogs. One was a chihuahua, <laughs> uh, kind of like half a dog. Ten, <laughs> ten times bark, though. That dog was mean. Uh, Our dogs had their own bedroom, particularly the chihuahua. No one went in his room. Even our other dog wouldn't go in the chihuahua's room. Uh, And no shade on anyone that loves your pets and treats them like humans, because uh, we do too, right? And we treated our dogs like humans, but we started to feel like there was a greater way that we could be using our home. 
know, anyone that's been a foster parent knows there's a ton of training and preparation that goes into having your home prepared to receive a kid into your care. And when we were finally approved, it didn't take long for us to get a call about a little baby boy who had just turned one years old. And his name was Emmanuel. Now, if you're familiar with uh, the biblical name Emmanuel, it means God with us. And in that moment, it felt like God was with us and that he was confirming that we were doing the right thing and that we were doing what God had called us to do. Now, Emmanuel was a sweet kid. He adjusted to our home fairly quickly. The only problem was he seemed to only want to use one word, and that word was mine. Everything Emmanuel laid his hands on from the time he came in our house was mine. As soon as he came into our house, everything, even things that didn't make sense. I mean, it's just the craziest thing. Now, this was years ago, and Emmanuel has since gone back home to live with his family. He hasn't lived with us in over four years, but uh, last year when we were in Atlanta visiting family, we got a chance to see Emmanuel, and he came running up to me, and he asked me two questions. The first was, where my truck? Uh, and the kid didn't like to use verbs, so where my truck? And he wasn't talking about a to- toy truck of his. That we sent all his toys home with him. He was talking about my F-150 pickup truck, <laughs> and this kid wanted to know where his truck was. Uh, the second question he had for me was, where are my dogs? Uh, and he wasn't really talking about the Chihuahua, because <laughs> no one liked Chihuahua. He was talking about our larger dog that he was always trying to ride around the house like it was a horse or something. I got pictures if you want to see it. That dog was a saint. I don't know if dogs can be saints. That dog was a saint, tolerated all of his foolishness. This kid thought everything he placed his hands on uh, was was his. Um, Now, I think we've all been like Emmanuel at some point in our lives. It's like there's something innate within us that wants to own things, that values ownership. We don't just want them in our hands. We want them to be ours. And that makes sense, right? You uh, work hard for the things you have. Legally, uh, I hope, um, I'm trusting all of you, legally, the things you have are, are yours. You've sacrificed to get to a place in life where you're able to provide for your family. We live in an economic system, right, where we earn money to buy things that we want. For all intents and purposes, they are ours. But this is an area where I think the teachings of Jesus are countercultural. You see, Psalm 24, verse 1 is true, and I believe that it is, and Jesus seems to think that it is, so I think we're on good grounding here, then all of our belongings actually belong to God. You see, Psalm 24, verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And this is where biblical stewardship starts, with his belief that God owns everything. And our responsibility is to manage the things we have for God. Now, one of my favorite New Testament passages for thinking about stewardship is in Matthew chapter 6. And it's here that Jesus teaches about one of the primary things that often hinders us from living the generous life that God is calling us to. Now, Matthew chapter 6 is right in the middle of a section of Scripture known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest continuous teaching of Jesus in the Bible. It spans three chapters, chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's known on the Sermon on the Mount, known as the Sermon on the Mount, because as you might expect, Jesus goes up on the side of a mountain, simply sits down, and starts teaching people for what was probably several 
hours. And in this sermon, Jesus is helping his disciples understand what it means to live for God in a world that does not have the same value system. Now, if we put this section of scripture more fully in context, we see that Jesus isn't speaking directly to us. I mean, we weren't his original audience. In fact, I believe Jesus was fully in the moment with his disciples, and he was teaching them how to live the life that God created them for. Now, I believe that the men and women that gathered around Jesus that day believed that they had found something in Jesus that was profoundly true. And as they listened to him teach, they became more convinced of this, so much so that they ended up reporting what they remembered, and they later recorded what they reported, and they wrote it down, and we have it recorded for us in the Bible. And therefore, while God wasn't speaking directly to us, this is God's word for us today, and it's here that we discover the truest way to live. It's here that we discover the life that God created us for. Now, I wish that I could hang out with you all for three or four months and preach straight through the Sermon on the Mount, but being that I only have this one Sunday and um, two more hours, <laughs> no, a few more minutes, that's one of those jokes where Michael said, laugh at his jokes, y'all like, <laughs> <laughs> not funny. <laughs> all right, few more, few more minutes, we're going to focus on this one phrase uh, that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, because it's here that Jesus says, do not worry about your life. Now look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. Do not sow or reap. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? What an interesting thing for Jesus to say, right? He doesn't just say, do not worry. That's kind of understandable. But he says, do not worry about your life. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't have anything more valuable than my life. And Jesus says, do not worry about it. In fact, he goes further and says, don't worry about what you're going to eat, drink, or wear. Now, when Jesus says, do not worry about what you're going to eat, I don't think he has options in mind here. Like, I don't think he's saying, don't worry about whether you're going to have Chipotle or Applebee's or um, a can of soup for dinner. Right? I think he's saying, don't worry about whether there's going to be food on the table this evening. Right? That's a hard teaching when we sit with that for a little bit. When Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to drink, I don't think he's saying, don't worry about whether you're going to have Merlot or Moscato or Mountain Dew. I think he's saying, don't worry about whether the well will run dry this season or not. And then when he says, don't worry about what you're going to wear, I don't think he's talking about fashion here, right? Um, I think he's saying, don't worry about whether you're going to have something to clothe your body. Now, for some of us, these aren't things we really think about on a daily basis. But what if they were? Does Jesus really expect me not to worry. Why would Jesus say something like this? You know, as I sit with this scripture, I start thinking, could it be that Jesus is helping us see something deeper here? Could it be that Jesus is inviting us to think more deeply about the role of the things that make up our lives? Now, when I first read this passage, it seemed like Jesus is saying, and simply teaching us not to worry because worry is unproductive. It's just not the best use of our time. He makes his point in Matthew chapter 6, verse 27, by asking a rhetorical question. 
It's here that he says, can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life, right? It sounds to me like Jesus is saying, worry is unproductive. It doesn't accomplish much. It doesn't do much good. Now, that doesn't mean that it's abnormal, that it's unnatural, or that there's something wrong with you if you experience worry. Rather, I think that Jesus is just recognizing a truth that worry does very little to change a situation. But think about that for a moment. Because I don't know if you're like me, but how much mental and emotional energy could we reclaim if we didn't expend, if we didn't spend excessive amounts of time worrying about things that we can't change? You know, I think this is what Paul, the author of Philippians, is getting at in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, where he says, Do not be anxious about anything. Do not worry. This is the same word for worry. Do not be anxious. Do not worry about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Give the things that keep you up at night. Give those things to God. Present your worries, your cares, your concerns to God. And then he says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. You know, I think Jesus wants us to reclaim the time and that mental and emotional energy that worry robs from us. But I don't think that's all that's going on here. Because, see, I can imagine some situations where worry actually motivates productive action. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if we're honest, right, worry is the only reason some of us are going to get up tomorrow morning and go to work, right? We got bills to pay, um, we got to put food on the table. I don't know the last time you went to the grocery store, but eggs cost more than a gallon of gas. I'm over here trying to figure out how to make uh, one egg omelets. So you can't quite, quite flip them. The rent comes due the first of every month. Some of us are working just so that we can eat, right? Worry sometimes motivates positive and productive action. Now, some of us, when it goes to the doctor, if we didn't worry that that pain might be more significant and worth getting checked out if we didn't log on to WebMD and start reading about different things. Some of us would, would just hope that it goes away on its own, but worry motivates us to do something about it. You see, the reality is worry serves a purpose. Now, it's kept me from making, and probably many of us in this room, from really bad decisions. So I don't believe the goal here is to get us to a worry-free existence. In fact, I believe you can love Jesus trust him deeply, and still experience worry in times of scarcity and uncertainty. You see, worry doesn't invalidate your faith. The problem, though, that I think Jesus is getting at here isn't the existence of worry, but the elevation of worry above our faith. You see, Jesus is warning against the danger of letting worry take the lead. He wants us to see that worry will control our lives if we let it. It will undermine our faith if we don't put it in, our, in its place. Like all emotions, I believe worry serves a purpose, but it's unreliable. Worry will not guide us into the way and will of Jesus. And if we let worry guide us, we'll never step out on faith and respond to the call of God. If we let worry guide us, we'll never become the kind of generous people that God is calling us to be. You see, worry will hijack our faith, and it will have us living for ourselves and the things of this world rather than living for God. So when Jesus says, do not worry about your life, 
He's teaching us how to live in a proper relationship with the stuff that makes up our lives. He's teaching us how to manage our resources, the resources that have been entrusted to our care, in a way that honors God. Remember, the problem that Jesus is getting at here isn't the existence of worry, but rather the elevation of worry above our faith. This means that we must develop the habit of asking, what takes first place in my life? What am I living for? Or maybe a better question for you to ask is to people in your life that you know know won't tell you what you want to hear, people closest to you. Ask them that question. What takes first place in my life? When you look at my life, what do you see taking first place? What 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 does it look like I am living for? Now, I know in this series, Michael's been talking a lot about generosity. Um, But I want to talk a little bit about savings, because in my role with CFR, I travel all over the Northeast, and I talk a lot about financial stewardship. Now, I tend to think about stewardship as having two practices. There are saving practices, and then there are sending practices. Now, sending has to do with where your money goes after it leaves your possession. Now, some people might call this spending, but I prefer the word sending because it's a little bit more intentional, but it also captures the fact that um, we're not always getting something in return for the money that we send, especially if we're going to live the generous life that God is calling us to. Savings has to do with what your money does while it remains in your possession. Now, one of the things I teach everywhere I go is that it's wise for every individual and every family to have a three to six month emergency savings fund. Now, most people who are just getting started with an emergency fund find it helpful to put it in a place where they'll be less uh, likely to touch it and where it can build up over time. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen one of these one of these fire alarm boxes, these little red fire alarm boxes, uh, and sometimes they say, in case of emergency, break glass. Now, I don't, I don't really think they put those in buildings anymore, and my guess is that um, they were intended to try to solve a problem, that if you didn't put it behind some glass, then someone might pull it. In fact, I was in a coffee shop, Sunday Bakehouse, down in um, uh, Rockville yesterday, and there's a counter, um, like, kind of like a counter right by the window, and there's a fire alarm switch, and this lady was on her phone, and I don't know what she was doing. She was, I don't know, tweeting texting, something, whatever people are doing on their phone these days. She had a little baby sitting on the counter, and he had his hand on the fire alarm. And if he was strong enough, he would have pulled it, and the place was full of people. It would have set the alarm off. And I thought, maybe that's why they put these things behind the little glass. <laughs> I was, I was going to say there was, there was not a good idea, but maybe that's the reason. But I, like, I don't think they, they do that anymore um, because, right, putting a fire alarm behind a little piece of thin, breakable glass probably wasn't a good idea to begin with. I don't, believe, believe, I don't know who came up with the idea, but probably a bad idea for all kinds of reasons. Um, but as I looked at the internet, there are some pretty fantastic memes uh, for these, right? <laughs> and sometimes Saturday night, right? Uh, yep, oh, my phone running dead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> could use one of those someplace. I have a story about that that came from yesterday, too, but I won't tell it. Um, (laughs) You see, these in case of emergency break glass boxes, they they make a good metaphor for what we ought to do 
with our emergency savings, especially if you're just getting started and you're struggling to grow your savings. Many people find it helpful to put their emergency fund in a separate savings account so their balance isn't staring at them every time they log into their bank account, but they still have access to it in case of an emergency. Now, FYI, CFR has what we call ready access savings. It's a fantastic place for your emergency fund. Talk to me later about that. Financial planners, though, will teach you that your emergency fund is an important first step because it provides margin that's necessary to weather a financial storm. Now, this could be anything from an unexpected uh, expense to an economic downturn. The reality is we can't predict the future, but we can prepare for it. Now, I agree 100% with this, that we need to be prepared for the future. Everyone should be working on establishing their emergency fund and it doesn't have to be funded overnight. You could just start wherever you can with whatever you can. But this isn't just a purely financial step. There's also a missional component here that I don't want us to miss. You see, God is on mission right here in Frederick. And he's called the church, this church, to join him. You are the church, all of you. And over the last couple of weeks, Michael's been talking about the impact that this church has had through its generosity as it's joined God's mission in this community. This church is generous because you all have been generous. However, if we live with no margin, it's easy to get distracted from the mission. When we live with no margin, we are more likely to get consumed with worry during times of uncertainty, and we'll be more prone to shrink back from the work that God has called us to. When we live with no financial margin, generosity often dries up when it's needed most. While emergency fund won't eliminate worry, it does have the potential to limit worry's influence in your life. Remember, the problem that Jesus is getting at here isn't the existence of worry, but the elevation of worry above our faith. You see, God has great work for collective church to do, and my prayer is that you'll be prepared to do it because you've built in financial margin. You see, the reality is we live in the land of abundance. And even when we have everything that we need, our consumer culture causes us to worry that we don't have enough. Daily, we're bombarded with advertisements. Sometimes they seem to know what I need before. I think they always think they know what I need before I know that I need it. In this world, it's hard for us to actually define enough, right? It nearly feels impossible to simply be content with what we have. In this world, worry shows up in times of scarcity and in times of abundance, and this pervasive persistence of worry often turns us inward in search of more for ourselves and in the pursuit of our own good. Now, in the biblical world, no one epitomized this more than Solomon. We learn about Solomon mostly in the Old Testament, and the Bible says he was the wisest and wealthiest man of his day. He lived an extravagant life, but even with his great wealth, he never had enough. He was never satisfied. And I think it's no coincidence that Jesus mentions Solomon by name in Matthew chapter 6. Look at what he says in verse 28. He says, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is 
here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? You see, Solomon accomplished the dream. He achieved the lavish life he desired. He had millions of followers. But one of the saddest statements in the entire Bible is in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 17, because it's here that Solomon says, so I hated life because the work done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. You see, having obtained all the pleasures that life has to offer, Solomon discovered that pleasure without purpose is meaningless. He found out that worry will hinder us from being good stewards of the things entrusted to our care. He learned that if we're not careful, worry will hijack our faith and have us living for ourselves rather than living for God. And in Matthew 6, Jesus shows us a better way. He shows us to recognize worry and respond with faith. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Jesus is saying, do not worry. Do not let worry guide you. Don't chase after the things of this world, even the necessary things, but build a hedge against worry in your life so that it doesn't control you. And then look at what Jesus says we should prioritize in verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and these things will be given to you as well. You see, worry is inevitable. Therefore, faith must be intentional. You know, worry will turn us inward and have us seeking our own good, but faith helps us see beyond ourselves, and it motivates us to live generous lives, seeking the good of others, the glory of God. You see, we must recognize worry when it shows up and be committed to responding with faith. It's then and only then that we can live the generous lives that God is calling us to. Let's pray. Um, God, we give you thanks uh, this morning that, man, God, that you call us, that you know us by name, you know our story, you know, our flaws and all, but God, you still call us to be your representatives, to live on mission, to live for you. And so, God, my prayer is that you will help us see the times that worry creeps in and distracts us from the work that you've called us to. God, help us to see the ways the cares of the world draw us in and draw us away from you. God, help us to see that and respond with faith. In your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.